1: At this time of year, people begin to think about warmer temperatures and getting into shape. They rev up their exercise routines or start new ones. And with that comes the risk of injury. When you're testing your limits, even a minor injury can alter your performance. Joining us today to talk about the importance of physical fitness and having a plan to protect yourself from injuries is Craig Alexander, a former professional triathlete who is a five-time Ironman world champion. Welcome, Craig. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Hi, Joan. How are you? Thank you for having me on.
1: So, Craig, I want to start off by talking a little bit about your journey. Were you always an athletic person?
2: I was always very active, yes, growing up. um, Like a lot of kids in my neighborhood uh, where I grew up, we played a lot of sports, all sports, mainly team sports. Um, Soccer was my main love. I played it for 15 years. So, yeah, I was always very active. Um, I think it was a big part of my, my life being... Outside and uh, playing different organized sports, so uh, as long as I can remember, I was always involved in all sorts of sports. So it's it's always been a big part of my life. So
1: what got you interested in triathlons? I mean, that's a really challenging endurance sport.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I played soccer for fifteen years, but I think when I was about fifteen or sixteen, I first saw the Ironman in Hawaii on television, um, and Even though at that time I was playing team sports and I was more of a sprinter, I mean, I was more into running the 400 and 800 than than longer distances, um, particularly at school athletics carnivals. Um, I think something about the event just must have interested me and captured my attention. I think on reflection, it was the challenge of it. It just, I remember seeing it for the first time. And I remember the aerial shot of, of the big island of Hawaii and the lava fields and the the amazing blue ocean and the wind the trade winds blowing and and then watching the event these incredible athletes covering what seemed like ridiculous distances it, it seemed impossible um I think that just caught my attention and that was probably five or six years before I ever did a triathlon so something about the sport and that event in particular captured my attention I think it was the what I saw as the challenge of it mm-hmm. um and yeah I kept each year I knew it was on in October and I kept looking for it to watch the race and you know, when I was about 20 or 21, I was halfway through a Bachelor of Applied Science degree in college. Um, my soccer career had finished and I started running, just started jogging one day to get back in shape. And that led to some swimming and, and then triathlon. Um, and before I knew it, I was signing up for my first event. So, um, But I had watched that event in Hawaii for five or six years on television before I ever actually did a race.
1: I have two sons that were competitive swimmers through high school, and so I know what goes into swimming. And so for you, you mentioned that you were a strong runner, and biking seems to come along with that. Was swimming the greatest challenge
2: for you? I think it was because, as you would know, having watched your kids, it's such a technical sport. Technique is very important when you're in a medium that has a lot of resistance like water does. So efficiency is important. And and what we see with swimming is when you learn the technique very young, that's the best time to learn um, because you're the most flexible. And if you can lay down those really good movement patterns young, you have them for life. Um, And I did a little bit of swimming. I mean, I played some water polo in high school, but I never had formal swim coaching or technical instruction until I started in triathlon. So, It did make it tough, um, but I just had to work extra hard on it. Uh, It became a focus point. I think having played soccer and other sports where running um, was a basis for those sports, the the running naturally became the easiest of the three disciplines. And and I think you're right. I think runners pick up the cycling um, quite quickly. So swimming was definitely the biggest challenge. It required a lot of focus on technique, And just effort and a lot of time in the pool, repetition, consistency, um, and all those things that you need to improve.
1: So many of us that attempt exercise programs or or decide that we want to get into shape, the part that I think is missing is the mental aspect of it. So what type of training goes into reaching your level of success? And what should we all be doing on a daily basis to prepare ourselves?
2: Yeah, that's such a great question because the mind-body connection is strong and the mind- controls the body. So you can have the best physical shape, the best body, but I think mindset and attitude is very, very important. Um, What I observed throughout my career is that's what separates the good athletes from the great ones. Um, You know, and and as that relates to people just embarking on an exercise program, I think it's understanding why you're doing something. For me, that was always important to understand why I was doing what I was doing and training the way I was. Um, you know, what was what was driving me? And initially, that was just the challenge of the sport. I was really um, enticed by how hard it looked. And it was also a simple commitment I made on the first day of my triathlon journey, which was just to get the most out of myself. That was it. And I think, you know, as you grow as a person, that changed me as a person. And that motivated me. I saw what my family gave up. Um, So I could pursue my career internationally. um, And I was very motivated by that. So understanding why we're doing something is very important. And I think why that's important is because in any journey, it could be sport, it could be professional sport, or it could be recreational. You just, you want to exercise for lifestyle, for health and wellness. It could be business. It could be anything. There's going to be a lot of challenges and bumps in the road. And when we're very clear in our own head why, we're doing something that I think it makes it easier in those times to push on through. Certainly that was my experience. You know, you hear people say often, what's your why? Understand your why. And that was important for me to combat those tough moments and push on. And, and once I knew my why, you know, the what and the how fell into place a lot more easily. And of course, I'm talking about specific goals and, and also then a plan after that. But it all started with knowing why I, was, why I was getting up when the alarm was going off. What was getting me out of bed? So and I think that's, that's good advice for wherever you are and whatever you pursue because I think that crosses over into other, other arenas, not only sport. I think that's true in business and in our personal lives. Um, you know, understanding our motivation I think is important.
1: Yeah, absolutely, because when you don't understand your motivation or what drives you when you hit a bump in the road or you face a challenge, you tend to give up, and I think that's what happens to so many of us.
2: Yeah, no, I would agree. I think when you're very clear on why you're doing something and also to a lesser extent what it is that you want to achieve, then you can really get through those. I mean, you can call them sacrifices. I, I like to call them tough choices that you have to make. In the end, I, I look back and I don't regret any of those tough choices and I don't see them as sacrifices. They were necessary decisions that had to be made to achieve what I wanted to achieve. And, and I think on motivation, it's important that, you know, I've worked with enough athletes now, post career to know that that's not a one size fits all that's very individual um to all of us we're all different what drives us is very different and you know there's no right or wrong answer there but if something's very personal to you it'll it'll be meaningful and it'll be long-lasting
1: Craig have you ever worked with an athlete or or maybe this happened to you as well where they sustained an injury or something outside of their control that they had to deal with? Because we're talking about motivation and the things we can control. But what about those external factors that hinder us? How can we navigate those?
2: Yeah, well, they're inevitable. And, you know, I once heard a saying, it's not, you know, if the storm's coming, it's it's when and how often. There's going to be a lot of moments that challenge you. And often you haven't brought them on yourself. Um, They have been out of your control. And I think in those moments, experience helps, but just understanding that you are only in control of so much. And, you know, as an athlete, my job was to make sure that I was across all of those things that were in my control. And, and also an understanding and acceptance that there's a few things that I won't have much say in. Um, and that's, that's the way a lot of sporting events play out, play out, and that's the way a lot of things play out. So, again... You can only control so much and I always felt my job as an athlete was to be to check all of the boxes of the things that I could control my physical conditioning my mental conditioning my equipment all of those things and there's a lot there's a lot of boxes to check and you know it was a full-time job but you know in the final wash up when you're doing that sort of analysis of a performance and often you're not only looking at the result the result is one-dimensional you're looking at many factors of the performance, you know, there are things that that are out of your control and, um, you know, are there lessons to be learned there? I mean, there's always lessons, but I think in any situation, you can only control so much and you need to accept that and just move forward as best as you can. So, Craig, if,
1: if someone is listening to us right now and he or she decides that they want to embark on a career along the path of something like you did or, or even just to get more physically active, what is the best way to go from a beginner to someone more advanced safely so that he or she can avoid these injuries?
2: Yeah, well, with endurance training, it's about patience and consistency. There's no shortcuts. There's no quick fix or magic bullet, there's no hack that will get you to world-class conditioning overnight. It's Physiologically, it's a process. Aerobic conditioning takes time. Um, And whether you're a beginner, so you're starting for the first time, or whether you're a world champion who's come off a break or an injury and getting back into things, the principles are pretty much the same. You need to be patient. You need to understand what your current level is and understand that's not where you're going to end up. It's just where you are now and train accordingly. Um, be patient, don't overreach. Be realistic about the time that you have available and use that time wisely. Consistency is the key principle with any successful endurance training plan and that's for athletes of all levels. Um, of course, the complexities and the progressions change um, as you improve, like anything, but consistency is key. And you know part of being consistent is recovering well. So you need to focus on recovery. The ability to back up and train again a day later or two days later um, is very important. So you need to focus on your recovery. That's important advice for all levels of athletes, people starting out for the first time, former professionals, current professionals, experienced athletes, um, or someone just returning to the fold after an extended layoff. Um, Train consistently, focus on recovery.
1: Yeah, because it's important to listen to your body.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's probably the most important thing. There there are so many devices and and wearable tech that we have access to these days that track our sleep, um, that track our calorie expenditure, um, our heart rate. And I do like a lot of the information you can get. Um, Some of it's quite complex and high level. It's all useful if you understand what the information is telling you and how to use it to get better. But I think something that's never out of fashion for any athlete, again, of any level, is listening to your body, listening to the, the cues and the and the signals that your body's giving you, fatigue, soreness, when we need extra rest, um, when we're potentially heading down the path of an injury, that feels a little different to normal overload and fatigue. So I think with experience, if we're vigilant and pay attention, we we learn pretty quickly what our body's trying to tell us. And I think that's that's a Completely undervalued trait that every every athlete of all levels should should try and work on.
1: Craig, you've been an athlete for most of your life, and and you've achieved tremendous success. But could you speak to someone for a moment who may not be physically active, and and talk to the importance of getting our bodies moving?
2: Well, I think it's well documented this countless studies and research that show the benefits of exercise and regular exercise, and it doesn't have to be high intensity. I mean, I've always been a big believer that movement is medicine. Um, You know, my education, I I got a Bachelor of Applied Science degree in physiotherapy, so I was always interested in the body and in how it moves and the benefits of movement and when things go wrong, why do they go wrong? How do you get it back on track? Um, But I would just say to anyone listening, you know, you don't have to be put off. It doesn't have to be painful. It just has to be consistent and regular, it can be low heart rate, low intensity, um, and find something that you enjoy doing. If you enjoy doing something, we tend to go back to things that we enjoy, so that will increase compliance. And there's so many things that constitute exercise. It doesn't just have to be in a gym, working out, or it doesn't have to be running. It can be those things if you love those things, or it could be a team sport. Um, You know, I would encourage people who struggle with motivation to try and join training groups. They're very social. It, it, it increases your accountability, I think, and your compliance when you're meeting people. And just in, If you're very social, it increases the enjoyment factor as well. I mean, it doesn't have to just be hard work. It can be dressed up as other things. Um, but mainly I would just say find an activity that you really enjoy or a sport that you enjoy. Whatever that is, pickleball, tennis, golf, anything, it's all movement. Um, exercise comes in many shapes and forms, so... Uh, I think the hardest thing to do is to find something that we love, or maybe that's not so hard. But then, secondary to that is to get started. Getting started's hard, so that's you know that's the hurdle you've got to you've got to clear. But just get started, get started in a very simple way and in an enjoyable way, and you won't regret it.
1: Craig, where can the listeners go to get more information about you and your work?
2: Well, if they want more information about me, they can head to. I've got I'm on all the usual social platforms, but I've got a training platform, sensigo.co. We've got a lot of great training tips on there, um, some great resources, videos, really simplified information that will help get you started. Um, If any of your listeners are are interested in embarking on regular training um, programs or regimes, I encourage them to get started. Now, I talked about consistency, consistency, you know, recovery, preventing injury. There's a lot of great products that are readily available that I would encourage the listeners to go and check out. Craig, thank you
1: so much for joining us. You know, we've been talking about sports, but as you said earlier, these lessons that you've been teaching us today, these can apply to any aspect of our lives. So I really have enjoyed this conversation and I thank you for being here.
2: My pleasure. I appreciate you inviting me on to have a chat. It's been fun. This
1: is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
3: That's bestpathforme.com.
1: An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Contrary to the old adage, not all publicity is good publicity. Some can cause more harm than good. Hi, this is Joan Herman. As a public relations specialist, producer, and radio host who has conducted thousands of interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating with listeners staying tuned in or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, tips to be a successful sought-after radio and podcast guest, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit my website, joanherman.com slash mediatraining. That's joanherman.com slash training Hi, it's Linda from Linda Mitchell Coaching and Healing. Imagine yourself remaining calm, clear-headed, stress-free, and positive, even in the midst of life's greatest challenges. Good news, there's a proven process to help you do just that. And I'm living proof. Go to lindamitchellhealing.com to take a free assessment and learn the top ways you sabotage your success and happiness and how to finally break away from those old patterns. Let's talk after your free assessment at lindamitchellhealing.com. you. live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our coach on-call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Odette Coronel, a coach who helps people create the life and relationships they want. She's here today to discuss predictors of divorce. Welcome, Odette. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Odette, you work with people to help them build stronger, more lasting relationships. And through your work, what are you seeing? Why do you believe so many marriages are ending in divorce? Well, Joan, there are a number of factors and patterns of behavior that lead to divorce. But
4: there is some research conducted by Dr. John Gottman and the Gottman Institute that kind of really helps to predict divorce with very surprising accuracy. Actually, it's like, I think it's over 90%. And I think that all couples engage in some of these behaviors from time to time. But what you do now and then is not what matters. What you want to look at is the consistent pattern of behavior. So some of these predictors are, for example, how you start conversation, a difficult conversation that may lead to an argument or a conflict. And what you want to remember is the way that a topic is brought up, it sets the tone for the rest of the discussion. So if you begin the conversation in an accusatory way or in an adversarial way, then chances are that the conversation is not going to end well. Another predictor of divorce is what um, Dr. Gottman the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So it's criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. If you're communicating with your partner in this way, it's going to lead to an escalation of the problem rather than some kind of resolution. So for example, you can criticize or bring to your partner attention to a behavior that you don't like or you'd like them to change and focus on the behavior and how that behavior makes you feel as opposed to identifying your partner and labeling them as something's wrong with them or attacking their character or their personality. And treating them with contempt would be an example of that would be if you speak to them with a tone of superiority or you belittle them in some way. That's actually probably the worst out of all of the predictors of divorce. So you want to watch out for that one. Also being defensive. There's two ways that people are usually defensive. One of them may be just as when you feel that your partner is attacking you and you attack back, so you kind of counterattack, and that's really not helpful, (laughs) so it doesn't lead to a resolution. And the other way that you can be defensive might be just by acting like a victim and whining and complaining and nagging, and sometimes couples engage in that defensive behavior as a way to kind of deflect responsibility, the way of not taking responsibility, if you want to look for that as well. Another one, another predictor of divorce, and it's usually a response, it's a result of that contempt or that criticism, is stonewalling. So the partner may respond by just shutting down and not responding, not engaging, and acting like they don't care, but what actually might might be happening is that perhaps the partner is just flooded with emotion and doesn't know how to react in that moment. They might, you know, get into that fight, flight, or freeze mode, and they're not able to really engage in any kind of conversations. And the last one that I think we need to really look out for is failed repair attempts. So there are going to be conflicts in any relationship. There are going to be arguments, disagreements, and how you repair that conflict is what matters. It's being able to get that conversation back on track without it escalating.
1: Odette, the communication patterns that you just described, when a person exhibits this type of behavior, is it usually confined to a marriage or is that the way that person will communicate with anyone? That is a
4: great question, Joan, and. How we, I always say how we do one thing is how we do everything. So that type of communication pattern, it's very likely that you engage in that behavior with other people in your life, other important relationships in your life, perhaps with the people in your you know, family of origin, your parents or your siblings. And that may be where you learned that behavior in the first place. So it's very common that we are treating our children in that way as well or other family members or even friends or co-workers.
1: So doing this inner work is important because while we're talking about marriages, it's it's also the way you're interpersonally relating to anyone.
4: Absolutely. We have to be aware and responsible for our own behavior. We have to notice it. And we have to notice how our the way that we communicate our behavior makes other people feel.
1: I always say I wish we could treat our partner The way we would treat a new boyfriend or girlfriend post-divorce, I think we would see a different outcome in those relationships. Yeah, I always say
4: that we should continue treating our partner like boyfriend and girlfriend, just like we did back then. No matter how long you've been married, you should be excited to see each other. You should focus on their good qualities. You know, in the beginning, we kind of ignore all the negative qualities and all their faults and all those things that make them annoying. But as time goes on, we just focus on their negative qualities and we kind of minimize the positive. So we want to kind of create that habit of doing it on purpose. And one exercise that I offer to my clients is to, in their journal on a daily basis, write down at least three things that you appreciate about your partner, even if you don't feel comfortable telling them or expressing it to them, that's okay. At first, just do it for yourself. Notice it and write it down and see if anything changes for you. You might notice some kind of
1: shift. Odette, thank you so much for spending this time with us. If you would like to learn more about Odette and her work, you can visit odettecoronel.com. And as always, to hear more from Odette, you can visit our website, cyacylcom odettecoronel. We'll be right back. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Contrary to the old adage, not all publicity is good publicity. Some can cause more harm than good. Hi, this is Joan Herman. As a public relations specialist, producer, and radio host who has conducted thousands Thousands of interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating, with listeners staying tuned in or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, tips to be a successful sought-after radio and podcast guest, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit my website, joanherman.com slash training. That's joanherman.com slash training. Do you believe that there can be a silver lining from tragedy and that blessings come in disguise? Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Your attitude determines how you view a situation and how you move through it. A tragedy is defined as an event causing great suffering, destruction, and distress. We understand the meaning of those words. However, I believe the important component is how we view the situation. What may be a tragedy to one person is nothing more than a bump in the road to another. And while we can agree that events such as death, divorce, or job loss, create less than desirable circumstances, each can be viewed and handled differently from one person to the next. The key is that person's outlook. There are people who see the glass half full in all situations, and others who see it as half empty. We have a choice about how we view what occurs in our life and that choice determines how we will transition through a tragic experience. So how can you get through a tragedy? Recognize that you have a choice in the situation. We often believe that we are a victim of circumstance and that this will be our lot in life. We think that we will never recover. The key to moving on is to know that you have the power to change the situation. No matter how devastating the circumstance, you have the power to get through it. You are not a victim. The choice is yours. Never suppress your feelings. Hurt, sadness, and grief are all normal emotions and they should be felt. The problem occurs when you allow yourself to stay stuck, when you assume the role of victim. Get help if you cannot do it by yourself. Read books and seek information that can help you get your head in the game. Reach out to friends and loved ones. Isolation can make the situation worse. And seek professional assistance if you're overwhelmed, depressed, or have suicidal thoughts. Remember, you're not alone and you have a choice. How we experience our life comes from how we view what we experience. As Dr. Wayne Dyer said, when we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. Thanks for spending this time with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. The writing process is a creative pursuit that can sometimes come to a halt. Writer's block can be described as a condition in which a writer is no longer able to produce new material. Staring at a blank screen or page can be frustrating, but there are strategies that can help break the block and get their creative flow moving. Joining us today to help us understand writer's block and how we can put an end to the creative shutdown is Mary Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner who is the founder of Metro Hypnosis Center. Mary helps people clear blocks create new habits, and tap into the universal power energy for healing. Mary is the author of the book, Transformation Through Hypnosis, Relax, Clear Your Mind, and Step Into Your Power. Welcome, Mary. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Joan, for having me. So, Mary, writer's block is not usually due to a lack of writing skills. So why do you believe so many people experience this problem? Joan, I think it's uh, there's many
5: reasons like fear, fear of success, Fear, does someone want to hear my story? People have a strong desire to share their story, but they don't think that maybe it's worthy enough story. They get stuck in the head of putting the right grammar at the right time. They feel overwhelmed and anxious. Those are all things that contribute to writer's block.
1: Can anyone experience this problem?
5: Anyone can go blank. It's kind of like a quirk in a wine bottle, you know, the cork goes into the mind. So anyone can kind of go blank and,
1: and just not flow into that creativity. So what is it that happens to a person when he or she has writer's block?
5: It's almost like you're paralyzed. The thoughts just are not coming to you and you might have a thought that it's not flowing and you feel more pressure because of the writer's block. So that makes it even more difficult. You may feel unmotivated. You may feel self-critical and um, you may feel uninspired.
1: Do you think it's a vicious cycle? So, for example, you you really can't come up with any ideas and you're frustrated and then you get angry because you can't come up with ideas and then that anger creates more frustration, which keeps this cycle going? It
5: is. It has become a vicious cycle, uh, a circle like just like you described. And what you want to do is try to get out of that cycle, try to step away almost from the issue and look at the writing through fresh eyes. There's, um, there's that fear that you just can't get through. So sometimes you need a little help to get through this time when you're having writer's block.
1: Do you think that sometimes there are deeper issues at play when we can't get through it more than just being afraid that someone might not like what we're writing?
5: Yes, I think there's a lot of uh, self-worth issues that can come in there, a lot of confidence issues. So it's not just always the creativity flow. There's so much more in the programming of your mind that maybe you're not worthy and deserving to write the story, to share the story. So there's a lot more.
1: No, go ahead, Mary. I'm sorry.
5: So there's, there's a lot more that goes to play that you could actually look deeper within yourself to figure that out a little better.
1: So these are things that we're not even aware of. Right. The programming,
5: it goes back to all the things that running in the background. And, and a lot of times, like you said, we're not aware of it.
1: You just mentioned a few things that we can do to break writer's block. Are there other strategies that you can offer? Yes. So
5: I would suggest to start getting into a meditative state to clear the mind, to, um, let go of the thoughts because sometimes the thoughts are what's blocking. So in doing meditation is a good thing. I also think changing your environment is a really good thing to help um, with writer's block because sometimes you're in this energy in your house or maybe it's an office and you need just something to go to a different place. I When I was writing my book, I found it very helpful um, to go to my friend's lake house and it was quiet and it was a different environment, and just it allowed me to go out in nature, take a walk in nature, and kind of come back and refresh myself and write.
1: I know some writers have one particular way to write their book, they have a process where they may sit down every day at 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. and they make it very scheduled and it's it's like a ritual to get it done Or other people like to have it flow in more like what you were just describing. Do you think that one way over the other could be better for writer's block? I think it's good to create a schedule for yourself. I don't
5: think there's um, a black or white answer for everyone. I think everyone has to find their right flow. I'm not a person who's overly structured in my process. I feel that if you try to work on just getting into that flow and writing for that moment, but having a schedule brings that every day you can at least try to get something out. And everyone has different things going on. It's very time consuming to write a book, which probably makes people feel more pressure as well. So having a structure, though, can be a good guide, but you don't want the structure to add to the writer's block because I feel that I have to write at this time or anything like that. So do what's right for you and what helps you flow.
1: And Mary, can hypnosis help someone to break this pattern?
5: It can, because it can help you look within and find out what specific is the block. Is it just a lack of creativity? Is it a self-esteem issue? By looking in, within you, you can find that. And one of the things I love doing in hypnosis with authors is creating a room of that you can write and like almost plug into your imagination. And that has really helped a lot of authors that I've worked with um, to get more inspired and more creative. So there's lots of great tools that you can learn and use in hypnosis.
1: Can you explain that a little bit further? What does it mean to create a room? Sure. So in hypnosis,
5: we're in the imagination of the mind, right? So I actually have them picture them going into this special room that's just for writing. And in this special room, there's all of these, like, let's say outlets that they can plug into. So maybe they need to plug in today to creativity. Maybe they need to on another day plug into more structure, right? So they actually have all of these outlets and that they can plug right in. So In that hypnotic space, and they can use this on their own and before they're going to write, go into this using self-hypnosis and then kind of feel that connection with whether it's um, inspiration, whether it's motivation, and just feel that energy coming into them. And a lot of times I'll do recordings that would have that so they can actually listen and, and in their mind, keep reviewing it so that it becomes more natural and easy for them to do as well.
1: And Mary, you and I have talked about this before in the past, but people have a preconceived notion of what hypnosis is from those television shows that we've seen people clucking like a chicken and doing ridiculous things. Is that what hypnosis is? And, and how can it really help a person in his or her life?
5: So hypnosis is unlimited. And it is unfortunate that people have some of those examples from TV, but what you want to know that's TV and what most people do in an office is clinical hypnosis. So their whole goal of clinical hypnosis is to help people to release, to let go. And there's, it doesn't matter whether it's writing um, or it's any type of confidence issues, any type of health issues, because when you go into your mind and you try to understand what the issues are within you. You can clear them and come out a whole new person. You can transform with the work in hypnosis.
1: Now, you just said that it's done in an office, but does hypnosis have to be done in person or can it be done virtually?
5: Oh, it can be done virtually. I um, do Zoom. And also when people, I know people and we've gone in and out, we can do even do it on the phone. So um, it's everyone's comfort level. But Zoom has been become a great place um, to create an office and we create that energy flow in that virtual office as well.
1: And Mary, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your work? They can go to my website
5: MetroHypnosisCenter.com
1: Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How can music help diminish your stress? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati.
3: I'm a musician, sound practitioner, and the creator of The Sound Life, an app for stress reduction through relaxation and meditation with sound and music. Fortunately, there is an ample supply of evidence-based scientific studies suggesting that music can augment or diminish the stress response. When music is used to diminish the stress response, it positively impacts stress symptoms related to insomnia, depression, surgery, cancer, and coronary heart disease. Music can be a powerful ally in combating stress because it simultaneously impacts physical, mental, and emotional processes. Music evoked emotions provoke neuropsychological processes that induce physiological responses. When music evokes an emotion like joy, the psychophysiological response can promote relaxation. Some common experiences are slowing breath and heart rate, lower blood pressure, reduced muscle tension, and a general feeling of ease. Music is one of the easiest to access tools to decrease stress and increase wellness. I'm Allison Ayati and I wanna help you live a healthy, happy life. To learn more, go to livingthesoundlife.com. Sound meditation is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention.
6: What's the difference between the apple you buy at the grocery store in October versus the one you buy in February? Not only does the October apple taste so much better, it's also packed full of nutrients because it's in season. Now, it's pretty great to be able to go buy apples all year round, but might there be a reason that nature made them come into season in the fall? We're fortunate that fresh produce is on the shelves year round, but we're missing out if we don't eat seasonally. Here's what I mean by that. As we evolved as a species in Africa, nature enforced our seasonal eating and nothing grew in the winter but a bountiful harvest of root vegetables and fruits came into season in the fall to help our bodies prepare for when nothing would be available so here's the thing our bodies evolved eating seasonally they didn't just endure seasons they actually developed self-healing bioprocesses that use the seasons if we don't observe seasons with our food today we're missing out on some great work our bodies can do for us I'm Julie Sloan, Certified Health and Wellness Coach, and I help people transform their health and relationship with food through a 90-day challenge where I focus on mindset, nutrition, and food psychology. Find out more at WellAndGrounded.com. That's WellAndGrounded.com.
1: Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. According to Mental Health America more than 15% of youth ages 12 to 17 report suffering from at least one major depressive episode in the past year. Childhood depression is more likely to persist into adulthood if gone untreated. Joining us for this week's To Your Health is Darren Aletto, a licensed professional counselor who is Program Director of the Hope and Resiliency Center for Youth, Outpatient Behavioral Health Services for Bergen-Newbridge, and Dr. Shahan Siptain, Chief Psychiatrist, Ambulatory Services, and Associate Residency Program Director at Bergen-Newbridge Medical Center. Welcome, Darian and Dr. Siptain. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us.
7: Thank you for having
1: us. Doctor, let's begin with you. How prevalent are mental health issues in teens? Um, Well,
7: John, uh, we know that, you know, it's coming on the rise. And as we talk about the numbers, we have seen like at least one in six in U.S. uh, youth aged between 16 to 6 to 17 years experience mental health disorder. And this is an all lifetime prevalency of 50 percent by the age 14. So it's quite uh, alarming.
1: Doctor, do you think that the teen suicide rate is on the rise or are we just hearing more about it?
7: I, again, if you look at the numbers, you show that it's on the right, but it may be an iceberg phenomena. It's there and now being more uh, coming out and discovered with all the awareness, especially post COVID. So, like, it's there, uh, but not discovered.
1: And, Darren, why do you believe this is happening? What is driving the situation?
8: COVID really exacerbated a lot of these symptoms for patients, especially our teens. You know, they're having such a, they're already vulnerable for things such as anxiety and depression. They're going through changes in their body at school and in their uh, social life. But now having to deal with the added stress of managing things such as, you know, COVID, um, reacclimating to a social situation after being in quarantine for so long, um, it really just makes things so much more heightened for them.
1: What role do you think social media plays, if any, in this situation?
8: I think social media plays a large role. Personally, we see that kids are so overconsumed and oversaturated with things such as Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. They're constantly seeing what their peers are doing and they compare themselves constantly to what's going on. You know, this one's going here, this one's going there. And what am I doing with my life? This one got into this college and I didn't get accepted to my first choice. So I think there's constantly this this highlight reel of everyone else's life being put in their face that it's so hard for them to identify, like, what am I doing right? And constantly taking their own temperature and seeing where they are and feeling as though maybe they don't add up to as much as their peers. So I think it does play a role in self-esteem for sure.
1: Yeah. And I wanted to ask that question because I recently did an interview with an expert who studies hate the science of hate. And he was talking about how the algorithms for social media are designed for the negative. and And that's done on purpose because negativity increases engagement and it means more money. Do you think that that plays a role in it as well? And, and Darian, I'll, I'll stick with you on this one. I mean, that's such an interesting concept. I never really thought of that, but I can absolutely see how that can
8: really engage someone because we're going to want more of it. Think about how our brain operates, too, when we're stimulated by things like that. It can be very addicting to keeping going in on that cycle and wanting more and more and more. So I can definitely see how that plays a role. You know, we like to think social media is this place that we're posting all these positive, great things. And it's a you know, instrument of good, but it actually causes a lot more harm than we think.
1: Yeah, I think it started out that way, but it, it once people realized that they can make a lot of money with the negative, I think it quickly transitioned in that direction. And so, doctor, what are some of the warning signs? What should parents and loved ones be on the lookout for?
7: Yeah, no, that's a very good question, actually. Uh, it's something we all should be aware of, especially when uh, we know that our teens are going through a lot. You know, we have to make sure that we are on top of these uh, signs and symptoms. And what you can see is uh, like sudden cut off from their uh, social group or their uh, parents at home or their siblings and more withdrawal from uh, the regular activities. Sometimes there's a dramatic change in the personality or suddenly an appearance changes because they are constantly trying to compete with the peers as they as mentioned, right? There's uh, changes in eating habit. There's also sudden like acting out, behavior outbursts can happen at home. All these are warning signs which we should uh, pick it up and uh, sometimes sit with them and talk and try to understand what they're going through.
1: Doctor, is that enough when a child feels that there's no other option but to end his or her life? Is talking enough or is there something more that we should be doing? I think sometimes...
7: The initial step is to talk to understand them because uh, one, unless you know what exactly is going on, you won't be able to uh, reach out for help. So understanding what exactly is going on. But at any point you feel that there is dangerousness or self harm or suicidality is there, you should reach out to the um, uh, like uh, professionals to get help. The talking is not enough at that point mm-hmm. because. There is the reason why they are not opening up and they have come to such an extreme. And at that point, things may be more uh, than you as a parent or family can see and the professional has to take more.
1: I raised two boys and boys are notorious for not talking to their mothers. And that's when things are going well. So Darian, how do you get a conversation started when a child doesn't necessarily want to talk to a parent? Ooh.
8: That is a tough one because I think every parent has that experience once in a lifetime, right? Um, I think the best thing to do is come into the conversation being open minded, non judgmental, and not coming in from a place of authority, but coming in from a place of understanding and caring. Letting a, a child or a teen know that. They can tell you anything and it's not going to result in them being punished, but it's going to result in them getting support and help. It's so important. I think oftentimes, you know, parents approach the topic with a little bit of fear and a little bit of anguish because they're afraid of what's going to come out. But like Dr. Siptain said, like these are conversations that are important to have because they're the start of us getting support for our teens.
1: And Darren, what are some resources that are available to parents and loved ones?
8: Um... So here at our medical center, we have quite a few children's programs that have, you know, been very helpful. We found a very positive um, outcome with most of our, our, those we've engaged with. So what we have in terms of resources for children is we have the Hope and Resiliency Center for Youth, which is a children's intensive outpatient program, which is a three day a week group, uh, group treatment modality that focuses on group treatment with their peers and also includes family therapy, individual therapy, because, Yeah, it's great. We can teach kids and we can talk about our feelings here, but it has to carry over into the home if we want to be successful. So that's one of the resources we have. We also have individual therapy here at Bergen Newbridge Medical Center for teens, you know, having that place, that safe space for teens to come and talk to a non-biased third party about what's going on in their life has proven to be really helpful not everyone has that opportunity you know or has that level of comfort to talk to their teens about you know depression or anxiety or changes in their life so having this this third
1: this a therapist can be really helpful for these teens and dr what are your final thoughts on the subject what would you like to leave our listeners with
7: again I think uh, if I have to give away bullet points from here don't underestimate that the um, mental health issues in the young teens is actually an issue. Don't just think that this is a school-rated problem. Uh, the family and friends um, need to start the first step, uh, open up, understand the warning sign, and um, again, have a approach of more, um, like a friendly approach rather than punishing approach when you see any outbursts or any changes in personality. Never uh, hesitate to reach out to professional because, you know, you want to catch it before it becomes too um, aggressive or too complicated.
1: And Darren, where can our listeners go to get more information about your work? You can go to newbridgehealth.org. Please utilize our, our
8: website, it has tons of information.
1: Darren and Dr. Siptain, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, CYACYL.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital articles, check out our team and book club, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow us on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.
0: The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications